You're listening to the Gaming News Canada Show with Steve McAllister. Welcome to a special edition of the Gaming News Canada Show podcast presented by Osler, Hoskin, and Harcourt LLP. I'm your host, Steve McAllister. Today, we've called an audible with regards to the pod and for good reason. The Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport and McLaren Global Sports Solutions next week are co-hosting a two-day symposium on competition manipulation and gambling and sport at the Weston Harbour Castle in Toronto. Richard McLaren will be front and centre at the symposium, and deservedly so. He's an officer of the Order of Canada, counsel to Mackenzie Lake Lawyers LLP in London, Ontario, and a professor of law at Western University. Richard is also an internationally recognized expert in sports law and arbitration, and for the purposes of our conversation today, as the integrity officer for both FIBA and the International Boxing Association, and the chief anti-corruption officer for the International Tennis Integrity Agency. Welcome, Richard, and thanks very much for being with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Steve, and I look forward to having our conversation. Yeah, me, me too, Richard. Let's just start. I'd love to get hear about your own journey. I mean, obviously, you you've been around uh, been around block for a, for a while now. <laughs> not not just the national stage, but the international stage. And I was hoping we could just uh, start with you, kind of talking about how you got into this or how your journey started, in uh, with regards to match fixing and corruption in sport. Sure. Uh, well, I started. Uh, first of all, I should say, it wasn't a planned career move. Uh, <clears throat> I got contacted by the National Hockey League and the National Hockey League Players Association back in the early 90s, just after Gary Bettman became the commissioner of the NHL, is they wanted to um, replenish and, and change their uh, group of arbitrators who did sport, uh, salary arbitration for the NHL and the NHLPA. And uh, they invited me to be one of those. and. Uh, interesting process of selection by the way i was on the national hockey league list there are others on the national uh, hockey league players association list they crossed lists with each other uh, with eight names on each list and uh, the other side got to uh, take uh, four of the eight off uh, so i survived the cut uh, from the nhlpa and became a salary arbitrator for the national hockey league and i did that for four or five years uh, <clears throat> because i was doing that the International Court of uh, Arbitration for Sport, which is a Lausanne, Switzerland-based uh, body who really provide adjudication services primarily to Olympic sport, but to some other sports as well, but really not to professional sport. They were very worried about going to the um, Winter Olympic Games in Nagano in 1998 because that was going to be the first time that the NHL uh, players would be competing in the uh, ice hockey tournaments uh, at the Winter Games. And so they were looking for some people, uh, and they focused on me, who had both uh, arbitration and professional sport, and particular hockey experience. So uh, they invited me to join the court. And I've been a member of the Court of Arbitration for Sport ever since. Uh, <clears throat> so I went to Nagano and um, from there, I went to four more other Olympic Games. Uh, and the one in Sydney, which was the Summer Games in uh, 2000, there was a, a major issue for the US track and field organization centering on uh, Marion Jones, who was a very famous American sprinter, and her husband, uh, CJ uh, Hunt, uh, Hunter, who was uh, <clears throat> a shot putter. 
and it all centered on doping issues and it was creating such an uproar and a, and a backlash at the Sydney Games. In order to get it out of the press, they established a commission and I was asked to chair it, which I did, and I, along with uh, four others who were, uh, joined me, and also uh, I was extended the courtesy of having Bob Bennett, who was the lawyer who defended President uh, Clinton in the Lewinsky matter. He was my counsel, and we did the investigation, reported on, on our work later on in 2001. And after that, my work in sport just exploded from there, and uh, it's moved into working with tennis and, and doping matters, and then subsequent to that, manipulation, uh, betting problems. And uh, then as I started to do that work, more sports came to me. And finally, uh, to jump up quite a few years to the part that probably gave me the biggest uh, profile, which is when I was, first of all, on the uh, independent commission that looked into the problems of athletics, so track and field athletes in Russia and the doping that was going on within the Russian system. And then I subsequently followed that up with my own individual, nobody else being on the commission but me, a report about what went on at the Sochi Winter Olympic Games in terms of sample swapping, which was probably the most uh, uh, enormous uh, manipulation system the world has ever seen for Russian athletes to uh, cheat the system. And also the laboratory uh, was doing the same thing across a number of other sports that weren't necessarily winter sports. And uh, that led to ultimately a lot of consequences for Russian athletes and the sports federations. Uh, some of those events still having impacts even to this day in 2023, quite a number of years later. Um, that's a very quick summary. There's a lot more to it, but that, that's the, the key highlights, how I got started. And now um, I really don't do much else other than uh, uh, speak at conferences, run all the different functions that I have, uh, such as uh, integrity officer, and uh, uh, talk about and write about these issues involving sport. As a sports betting piece and match fixing, like how much how much oxygen does that take up with your time these days? How, how much of an issue is that? Oh, it's major. Uh, there are two major parts to how I spend my time. One would be in, in the manipulation uh, problems in that sphere, which also I would include doping in that, not just betting and gambling problems. And the other would be safe sport. And between the two of them, they comprise most of my day-to-day -day work, although I do other work as well. I think that's a good, that's a great segue into next week, uh, Richard. And again, uh, as I mentioned out the top, you're, you're going to be uh, highly visible at the, uh, at the symposium on competition manipulation and, and gambling and sport. And uh, maybe if you, if you don't mind, just, I, I think the last, the last uh, symposium was back in 2019 pre uh, pre COVID. Um, it would seem to me that the timing couldn't be better to, to bring back the symposium, especially where we are with regards to regulated sports betting in the province of Ontario right now. Um, obviously, uh, sports betting advertising is a hot-button topic in, in Ontario and the rest of Canada right now. So 
uh, as I mentioned, I think the timing couldn't be better, dude, to bring uh, not just the sports betting industry, but people like yourself together for a couple of days in Toronto. Oh, I totally agree. I think when we held that one in 2019, we were maybe a bit ahead of the curve. It hadn't really hit because the regulations hadn't changed. They've only been uh, in place a little over a year at this point here in Ontario. Uh, and not every province has uh, adopted the Ontario approach, but uh, gradually that's changing. And uh, so the, um, the topic today is uh, much more complete and vibrant than it was in 2019. Uh, and, um, you know, there's the conference is going to focus on the batting landscape, but uh, how you combat manipulation, uh, the running wild advertising that's going on with sports broadcasts. Um, but also it's going to look at the perspective of athletes uh, view uh, and how you can protect them and how they need to protect themselves and not just athletes, but also the officials. And so in some cases, even owners of uh, some of these uh, clubs are getting involved, not at the professional sport level, but uh, elsewhere. Uh, and then we're, we're also going to have a specific focus on the professional sports betting, uh, which is a big problem. And, but one of the interesting things in we've been at the forefront of this development i say we i mean my partner in investigation work which is herod associates and mgss my own company we've been using an artificial intelligence tool uh, to very effective use to identify people who are at risk that we might need to track or follow or depending on what we're doing with the artificial intelligence tool it's just a tool but it's it's been proven very effectively and we'll explain all that in the course of the conference. I know uh, the Canadian Centre for Ethical Sports, which is co-hosting the, the symposium with them, MGSS next week, Richard, was, um, you know, were supporters of Bill C-218 being passed back in the summer of 2021 to, to legalize single event betting. Um, and it, it does, uh, I think it's fair to say that the regulated sports betting environment is much better than, than the black market. There appear to be a lot of safeguards in place now. There's so many companies out there, uh, whether it's what you're doing or you look at the International Betting Integrity Association, which is going to be involved in next week's symposium, uh, Genius Sports, Sport Radar, U.S. Integrity. There are a number of organizations out there providing uh, providing support around integrity of sport. I just wonder if you is that a fair statement to make that uh, a, a regulated gaming industry is is better when it comes to protecting athletes? Oh, I'm not so sure that it helps to protect the athlete. I think that's more going to come down to the sport than uh, the regulators. But what the whole idea behind that regulation change was to. Um, cut back, because it would never be eliminated, the offshore, which at the time, now I'm talking before these regulations came into place, would have been illegal betting in Canada. In Canada but nevertheless, people would go to a, a sports book a website in, let's say, Hong Kong or the Philippines, where there were lots of them, and do their betting there. And so the idea was to try and bring a lot of that back and have it uh, in Ontario and have it under a regulatory regime and I think we've been quite successful at that. Uh, what's been surprising in the course of that occurring is the 
level, particularly professional sports, but sport in general, uh, is, is just embraced and embedded themselves in the betting industry. And, um, in pro sport, they are partnering with uh, sports books and they see this as a huge new sponsorship uh, revenue stream, which is always being looked for and is always very important in, in every sport. And there are a lot of, you mentioned a few, like uh, Genesis and Sport Radar and so on, integrity firms in the betting industry. And they gather and collate information from the sports books uh, who are reporting to them when they think that there's improper uh, betting going on, uh, something suspicious about the betting pattern. And then those integrity firms do an analysis as well because they're getting information from all sorts of different regulated sources and we've got a lot more regulated sports bodies now they keep coming in because they're coming away from uh, offshore locations and, and joining the system in Ontario and elsewhere and <clears throat> so the, the information comes into the integrity firm and then gets transmitted to the sport. Uh, look, uh, we think that uh, your this particular match in whatever sport it is has been manipulated, and uh, they usually do some investigative work. All of a sudden, sports have discovered, and this was something we were emphasizing in 2019 and really emphasizing in this uh, symposium, is uh, what does the sport do? What's the response? I mean, one of the things you have to do is if you think that your competitions are being manipulated, you got to do an investigation. How do you do that? And to have that and do that effectively, you need to have the proper um, code of conduct rules. Uh, you have to have a significant uh, and effective disciplinary procedure. You have to have in that code of conduct uh, uh, sanctions, which could be including lifetime bans from ever being involved in the sport, again, because of your conduct. Um, there can be, of course, much lesser bans, depends on the uh, severity and consequences of whatever's occurred. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, the impact of these regulations is for sport to improve its governance, um, have better codes of conduct, proper disciplinary sanctions, which also uh, provide appropriate protections to people who are alleged to be engaged in it so that uh, it's a fair and uh, just uh, adjudication of whether they are really involved or not. Uh, <clears throat> and on the other hand, the sport itself needs to add personnel that uh, are knowledgeable in the field. They need to add all sorts of updated technology that they don't necessarily ever have had in the past. Uh, and so the, the impacts uh, across sport, while they've embraced it uh, and they look at it as a new revenue source, which it is, it also is a very new expenditure uh, and growing fast, uh, particularly in the work that I do as, a, for example, the integrity officer for world basketball, FIBA, the Federation International Basketball Association. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, betting that's going on, uh, which is a particular problem, is betting 
by the athletes on their own games. And, you know, that of itself, many times they don't even know that it's prohibited. And so you need to think about how you're going to educate your athletes and your officials and so on. I can talk about that a little later. Um, but it's growing exponentially in basketball and in other sports. Uh, betting uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the National or the National Football League uh, suspended uh, four players for betting on games, uh, gave them significant suspensions. And I understand there's a few more to come uh, in the near future. Uh, all illustrative of the the betting uh, problems that arise with sports. So it's not just a revenue source, it's going to end up being a significant re revenue expenditure. And then, as you were mentioning, uh, did the regulations protect the athlete? Well, not really, because uh, the regulated uh, sports books are not the problem. The problem is the ones that aren't regulated. There are still offshore that are operating in Eastern Europe, they're operating in Asia, uh, primarily in some of them in South America, uh, where people uh, can also go to their websites and, both, uh, and bet. They don't have to go through the systems that are available in Ontario and elsewhere. And uh, they're the problem. And they have uh, sophisticated betting syndicates with contacts all over the world, uh, and they find ways to influence athletes and sometimes officials and even on occasion I've seen owners of clubs in certain sports that have uh, ended up being under their influence and willing to manipulate maybe not the outcome of the match itself all right so the, the final outcome but aspects of the match so if it's a tennis match uh, what's going to happen on the first or second game of the second set, or if it's a, uh, a soccer match, uh, uh, when is the first uh, red card going to be given, or uh, the first goal, or some other aspect of the game. So those are just a couple of illustrations of what I'm talking about when I talk about manipulation. It isn't just the final outcome, but all, a lot of the waypoints along the way that uh, can be manipulated. So then, once these syndicates have got a hold of an athlete, the athlete should report corrupt approaches. That's what the rules should say that you've now put in place, uh, but they don't necessarily. And even if they do, they're worried about retaliation on the one side from the betting syndicates, and uh, uh, which could be quite severe in some cases because some of these organizations are highly organized criminal organizations. And so they don't report. And then they're caught in the, the web they can't get out of uh, until somehow the cycle's broken, usually by investigators. And we've done a number of investigations of different sports in, in this area. Um, so <clears throat> the impacts of the regulations are um, extensive. The protection to athletes, not really from the regulations. That's going to be up to the sport to make sure that athletes know, hey, you can't bet on your own sport, uh, and particularly in games that you're in, but you can't bet in your sport anyway, generally, never mind whether you're playing in it or not. But then you've got to also uh, educate them, uh, and education's a, a big part of the problem here, because uh, a lot of athletes that I've encountered in various investigations, they don't uh, even, even realize that they're not doing the right thing, uh, because They've probably done some betting all along, uh, 
just for entertainment purposes, not necessarily with large sums of money or anything. And they just carry on doing that. And then the rules change, but nobody told them the rules changed. And you're not allowed to bet on your own sport. You're not allowed to bet on games that you play in. Uh, and then they get caught out. And of course, then you have to put them in the disciplinary system. The disciplinary system has to have enough compassion and understanding to recognize that first offense is maybe not going to be a lifetime ban or anywhere near it. May not be much more than a, a short suspension, or a fine, or, or even just a warning. Um, so education's also a whole new challenge. And when 25, 30 years ago we faced the challenge with doping, uh, performance-enhancing drugs, uh, and the introduction of the rules to try and control that problem, and then that, that required also a massive education, which the World Anti-Doping Agency undertook and is now a very sophisticated system, both at that level and right down through international federations, national federations, sports organizations, right down to the grassroots, really. Doping uh, education is, uh, broadly speaking, well done. Uh, there is, could be improved. But in the manipulation area, that's just beginning, but we've got a, a major problem that's going to need to have a major uh, educational uh, development system. Uh, so that's really uh, another of the impacts of this whole regulation, but that's all on the sports side. So all those new revenue sources are going to get absorbed, I think, fairly quickly in the expanding problems related to uh, con in connection with the gambling, not so much the gambling in sport, but those who corrupt uh, athletes and others to manipulate uh, aspects of the competition. And so you see something like, for example, the international, uh, sorry, the Independent Tennis Integrity Agency, the ITIA, which regulates, uh, tries to deal with uh, manipulation of professional and but also much lower down levels of non-professional uh, athletes gambling and betting uh, and manipulating in the sport of tennis and it's very rapidly becoming a very big organization with very sophisticated techniques to try and uh, control that sport uh, I'm involved as the FIBA integrity officer so that's international basketball and uh, we're experiencing uh, a surprising increase in uh, problems, particularly in Eastern Europe, with uh, uh, manipulation and betting. Uh, and then the sport has to also face a problem that f pushes you into the international sphere because you don't have jurisdiction over these betting syndicates that are based in, let's say, Asia or elsewhere. Um, and so you, you can't get at the real cause. All you do is end up getting at the person at the end who's manipulated the match in some way and, and in, in a sense they're the victim they're they're at the end of the chain but the people you really want to get at are the uh, the people at the top of the heap that run these syndicates and the sophistication that they have in placing bets across a number of platforms throughout the world simultaneously uh, betting in small amounts on outcomes of particular parts of a, of a match and <clears throat> Getting uh, at those people requires cooperation with law enforcement, but law enforcement's restricted to its geographic 
sphere of influence. So, you know, a Canadian uh, law enforcement officer can't do uh, anything with respect to what's going on in, let's say, Singapore uh, in a betting syndicate. They have to get the local uh, law enforcement. So then we have to have international cooperation, which we have Europol, which is um, in Europe, uh, assisting a lot in this area, but uh, we need more international development. And we're trying to get at the people above the, the actual manipulators of the sport themselves, but they're hard to get at. And of course, they're outside the jurisdiction of sport too. Uh, and then when sport relies on law enforcement, I've seen this problem quite recently, big time. The um, sport wants the information which the law enforcement's gathered. Ultimately, they are entitled to it because they're a victim. So in, in many jurisdictions, you get whatever uh, is being used as evidence once it's in place and in the, in, in the court proceedings have begun. Uh, but you have to, as a sport, figure out what all, all means. And so you, the law enforcement, they're after the people higher up in the chain. They're not interested in whether or not the athlete uh, at the end of the chain actually manipulated the result or not. They're after the, the syndicates and the, the criminals. And so you have to then have highly sophisticated technical technology and tools to understand uh, how to download phones, for example, and then interpret the different messages that are used, messaging systems, and so forth. So um, it's a, it's quite an exploding field, uh, as you can probably gather from the conversation we just had about it. Sure. I'd like to go back to the education piece for a, for a minute, Richard, just because I've, I've been having this conversation for about two years now, first with Paul Melia, when Paul was the CEO at the, at the CCES, and now with Jeremy Luke in that position, Paul having retired, um, it just seems that's such an important piece as to, you know, in some respects when you hear about NFL players betting on NFL games, you think, part of you think, well, how stupid can an athlete be to, to, uh, to bet on his own sport? Uh, but you have a you have a basketball player speaking at the symposium next week, Jordan Spencer, who got caught uh, got caught betting on his team to win and it almost cost him his uh, his livelihood um, so maybe you know maybe it's not a maybe it's not a case where these people are are stupid they're just self informed a word from our sponsor the gaming news canada show is presented by osler hoskin and harcourt llp osler's gaming practice has the insight needed to help clients navigate the complex and evolving landscape of the gaming industry. Osler's position as a trusted advisor in the gaming industry has been built over years of service to operators, suppliers, and gaming authorities. Visit osler.com slash gaming for more information. That's O-S-L-E-R dot com forward slash gaming. Now back to the show. Is there an organization out there right now that you see that's doing a, a really good job in educating, educating their athletes and coaches and other stakeholders in sport? It, and, and really what is an it is a new landscape of sports betting, I think, with all the regulation, especially which what that we're seeing in North America. Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. Uh, there are some organizations that are. I think the Tennis Integrity Agency is doing a good job, and they've got now uh, their education program is uh, in many different languages. I think it's at least five. 
which is important. Uh, it can't just be in English or English and French. It needs to be in Spanish is important, but also uh, Arabic and uh, Eastern European languages. Um, but nobody's doing the level of uh, education, I think, that's really required in the level that has been done in the past in, in the doping and uh, performance-enhancing drugs field. Uh, we're still too early in the phase of development of that kind of uh, information. I, I was recently reviewing basketball's uh, rules about that, or education program about this whole topic area. And it's They're starting, they're trying, uh, but it needs uh, a lot of development. So uh, and athletes aren't stupid. They, they, let me give you an illustration that comes from tennis, actually, not from the National Football League. But um, tennis players have a lot of idle time because they, uh, you know, there's rain delays or matches take way longer than they were scheduled for because of the intense competition. And one of the things they do is they fiddle around on the internet while they're waiting, quite as, as do many people on their phones. Uh, and one of the things they fiddle around with on the internet uh, on their phones is betting. Uh, just for the, the seeking entertainment aspect of it. And then they gradually drift into betting on the, the sport because they know the sport. Right. The sport I'm talking about is basketball. Um, but they don't necessarily know, and this is where education comes in, that they shouldn't be doing that. And so education has to inform them of that. And then once you've got over those hurdles, then if they keep doing it, you have to have sanctions to stop them from playing so that they can't do that uh, and so education is plays a major uh, role here and it's in its early uh, infancy but if the, the regulators don't have anything to do with that they're regulating the sports books they're not really protecting the athlete another important part of protecting the athlete too uh, aside from education is the whistleblower and i've done many many investigations including the major ones in in russia but lots of other ones as well and you most of the time you it's almost impossible to conduct an investigation without the benefit of some whistleblowers so athletes or officials that are going to be uh, properly protected need to be protected also in the way in which they can provide information, make sure that it's confidential, that there isn't retaliation for having done so, uh, and that there is no leak uh, uh, that somehow identifies them as having provided the initial head start. That's where artificial intelligence comes in because it helps us considerably as a tool in, in identifying who we should be talking to. We don't uh, necessarily have to rely on whistleblowers. But whistleblowers and whistleblower protection is hugely important. And it also is in its infancy and not, it's never been a significant part of the WADA program until just recently in the last three or four years. And it's hardly in any proper shape or form uh, in the betting field. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is trying to provide some assistance in that area. But the problem is athletes don't use telephones. They don't pick up the phone and talk to uh, a line about whistleblowing. They use different kinds of media platforms, uh, and um, those, those aren't set up. So uh, whistleblowing is another important area that needs a lot more concentration and uh, development. Uh, and, and then you need to be able to tell athletes that's available. And if you use it, 
will protect you and will make sure that you don't uh, suffer the consequences that many whistleblowers have suffered in the past. And there's some pretty horrendous uh, situations with whistleblowers. The most horrendous, I think, that I've come across is the one that came out of my Russian investigations when Dr. Rodoshenkov, who was the president of, he was sorry, the chief scientist of the Moscow laboratory for testing uh, urine and blood samples. Uh, and he's had to flee Russia. He's now a witness protection. And this is eight years later in the United States in complete isolation from family, friends, and of course, his own home country. And his assets in Russia have been taken away from him. Uh, so the consequences of being a whistleblower can be enormous. Now that's an extreme example, but just trying to illustrate the point that uh, they need protection. Yeah, to that, Richard, anybody, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, the, the documentary Icarus is unbelievable talking about that Sochi, that doping program around the Sochi Olympics in 20, uh, 2014. And that's, uh, if you're someone who's more than a casual fan of sport, I'd highly recommend watching that. Well, you know, I'm in uh, Icarus, uh, and I went to the Academy Awards when it won the uh, Best Documentary of the Year in 2018. Uh, that that was a very interesting experience of its own. But uh, yeah, it's a good documentary. There's a, a sequel to that coming out. It's going to be. It's called Icarus Two. It's I've seen a snippet of it. I haven't seen the entire uh, episode. The entire film. And uh, Rodoshenkov, who I was just talking about, is in it because uh, it's a lot is about him and the, uh, what happens to whistleblowers. Right. Um, and I'm sure it'll get broadcast soon. Netflix decided not to take their option up and put it on their own system, but uh, I think the developers of the film are looking for another platform. Once that's announced, I'm sure it'll be available. But in the meantime, Icarus is on Netflix if you want to watch it. Great, uh, great documentary. And just, Rachel, I mentioned too about the whistleblowers that uh, the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sports, they did set up, I think, in the past 12 months, an integrity hotline. So there is uh, there is access for athletes now or coaches or other other participants in the sports system if they see something happening that they don't like. There is, I think, that you can, you can phone it in, you can send an email, but uh, they do have that integrity hotline service. Yes, I'm aware of that. Uh, and... Um but the problem with the, the so-called hotlines is <clears throat> the confidentiality and the protection and, uh, and the people receiving it, processing and handling the information correctly. And uh, that's where there needs to be a lot more attention paid to how it's done and uh, how people are protected. Um, so there are lots of hotlines around. The other thing that is a problem though, is on the whole, athletes don't really trust uh, the people who run different sporting organizations. So they're not particularly inclined to use a hotline, never mind thinking about possible retaliation and all those issues. Uh, they just don't trust the sport enough. Uh, and I see that particularly when you come to talk about not so much management manipulation, but safe sport. Um, people are very reticent to uh, talk to the sports administrators in that way. So if you're going to have a hotline, you need an independent organization like MGSS or CCES, the Center for Ethics and Sport, uh, <clears throat> to operate uh, a whistleblowing system um, so that the athletes aren't having to talk to the people that are actually in their sport. 
but somebody who's independent but still knows how to deal with the confidential aspect of the information and to use it properly and protect the athlete and not uh, expose them to additional problems. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Rich, and we're certainly seeing that right now with the with the Canadian sports system being under the microscope in terms of, uh, of safe sport. Bob Copeland from, from uh, your company who helped us set up this interview and really appreciate Bob doing that. He he mentioned that uh, you're you're a man with a lot of stories to tell because of your, your decades of experience in this area. I just wonder, is there one one story of match fixing or an anecdote that you can talk about that really really stands out to you? Um, <laughs> there's so many of them, and I have to think back and uh, what really stands out to me. Uh, yeah, there are a couple uh, in. Uh, in the tennis world, a lot of uh, athletes come uh, out of the NCAA uh, system, the college uh, sports system in the U.S., uh, and then they often go, while they're there, they go to tournaments. Uh, and they're not really professional, so they're still competing as amateurs because they're in college, right. and they go uh, to these competitions, and then they get approached. And this is pre the days of uh, the nil, the the name and image uh, payments that athletes in the States can now have, but not all that many have that anyway. Uh, and I, I had the experience of getting caught up with in the Middle East, uh, athletes who were being corrupted uh, and it was absolutely destroying their entire, their entire life because it was, they get disciplined by the university for uh, improper behavior as a student athlete. They get disciplined by the sport that they're playing in because they're manipulating results and they're getting uh, a small amount of money, which they're desperate for because they, even though they might be on some kind of sports scholarship, they're, they don't, that doesn't amount to, in a lot of cases, doesn't cover all of their uh, educational expenses, uh, let alone all the other expenses of going and competing at tournaments and so on. So uh, that was a uh, I've had to deal with that kind of situation a couple times with uh, competitions in the Middle East, and I, I found those somewhat upsetting, having to impose sanctions, which uh, I didn't have any discretion to reduce, uh, and I felt the consequences were really soul-destroying and career-destroying before they even got started on a career in tennis or in whatever their chosen occupation would be. It must, uh, when you talk about the NCAA, it must bother you right now that the, we've seen so many stories about student athletes being harassed on social media and by people who have bet money and, you know, had some, some 18, 19 year old college basketball player miss a free throw the last game so that they don't hit the over under or, or, you know, they don't, they don't get their 20 points so it affects, affects the better. Um, any advice to athletes or schools, or is that something that you've had to deal with in, in other sports across the different bodies that you work for? Yeah, I haven't really dealt with that particular issue in uh, the United States, but I have dealt with it in Europe. Uh, and um, I think you have to come back to the education point. Uh, you, you really uh, need to educate uh, the individuals about what's going on. and the risks of getting involved uh, and you know, one of the uh, uh, 
basketball common bets is what the spread will be. Uh, you know, is it going to be over a certain amount? Is it going to be under? That's a, a very common bet. There are so many different ways to bet. I mean, in professional tennis, you can bet 68 different ways. In basketball, I'm not sure how many, but it's it's got to be in the 20s uh, in terms of different ways of betting. And none of them are, well, only one of them would be what's the final outcome. And, and um, you know, a lot of athletes would say, well, you know, in order to make sure that the spread is the right number, uh, it's, it's not hard to either put the basketball on the rim or actually inside the rim and score points, uh, depending on what's needed. No more, or you need some more hit the proper level. Uh, and they don't, ones I've talked to and seen and dealt with, don't really see that as being a problem because uh, they were probably going to lose the game by that score or somewhere near that score anyway. Uh, so why shouldn't I get a little extra money out of uh, my play? Because I'm not earning a huge amount. In the United States, college athletes who don't, in many sports, earn very much money at all because relatively few of them have these uh, name and image uh, agreements that provide some funds. Uh, <clears throat> so they're totally dependent on their um, sports scholarship and, and whatever assistance parents and others give them. And that's true for uh, in a lot of sports, uh, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. Uh, and it's always the, the people lower down in the system who are, who are not making any money and have, but have a major expenses, uh, like a tennis player has to travel all over the world to play, uh, so does a golfer and so on. Uh, they get tempted and get caught uh, by the syndicates. Then they get corrupted and then they're on uh, a sharp spiral downwards once they get caught. Yeah, and again, with professional tennis, not not everybody's playing in the French Open or Wimbledon. There's these $25,000 satellite and challenger tournaments and you have some uh, you know, a young woman, a young man out there who's ranked 1,500 in the world, and they're like you said, Richard. They're traveling all over the world trying to scratch out a living every every week, yeah. and hoping that they do get the Wimbledon one day. And it's uh, it's it's a it's a grind. What's uh, surprising is it never used to be impacted at the very top levels, uh, so you wouldn't see uh, manipulation going on in the Grand Slams in tennis, for example. But uh, now we are seeing not a lot of it, but in the early uh, days of a two-week tournament, the first two days, there's where the manipulation is coming in. So we're now seeing it in the Grand Slams uh, uh, in tennis, and uh, same things happening in other sports as well. It, uh, it's, it's going up and up the system, and now we've got betting in pro sport. Uh, NFL is an example. I'm sure there are other examples. Hey, Richard, we only have you for a few more minutes, but I would like to ask you, I want to get back to the, the uh, sports betting advertising piece for a second because, uh, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it, it is, uh, it's been a topic that's been talked about a lot. Um, there's a Canadian camp group out there right now that includes Carl Subban called Ban Ads for Gambling, and uh, Carl's been doing the media rounds over the past week. Um, just your thoughts on that. You know, it does, what kind of impact the amount of advertising has, and, and do you have any thoughts on how how it could be done differently? Yeah, that's uh, that's a, a a big issue because it, the advertising not only it affects athletes, but
but also affects the general public. Uh, and some athletes we're seeing are, are addicted, as are officials uh, that referee competitions. We saw that in the NBA. Uh, and uh, the consequences over time of the excessive advertising, in my view, uh, that's going on, particularly in pro sport. I mean, you're watching hockey games at the moment. You'll see most of the advertising is uh, sports books. Uh, and they're, they're sponsors of the local club, they're sponsors in the league, uh, and uh, the addiction problem uh, in, with gambling um, is very real, and <clears throat> it's always, we've always had a problem with gambling and addiction, uh, but it's heightened by the advertising, and then particularly when you get uh, very well-known individuals who uh, support by the advertisement, uh, you know, doing something on one of the sports books uh, websites, they uh, influence people. And who's watching sport? You know, the, the whole spectrum of our society is watching sport, but who's getting really influenced by that advertising? The youngsters. Uh, the youngsters who are idolizing the hockey players that are playing hockey right now for the uh, Stanley Cup or watching the NBA playoffs uh, as it gets down to the final series and so on, Major League Baseball. And all of this is generating, I think, uh, societal problems that we'll be a, need to address in much more detail down the road. So it's, it, it is a big um, area and it's one that the sports regulators could uh regulate themselves because but they could put some limits on the sports books and i think the solution is probably going to have to lie there they're going to have to take action to control uh sports books uh advertising uh the uk is already stepping in with their gambling commission and doing that and uh, i think ontario is under is thinking about it there it's under consideration i don't think that it's got any further than that, but I'm sure that we're going to end up having to step in and control that to some degree. And so regulation will benefit from that regulation, but it probably will never uh, solve the problem. And certainly uh, we need to focus on education uh, just the way we focused on education to stop young people smoking, although that seems to be on the uprise at the moment. Uh, we need to stop and provide education to stop them getting uh, tangled up in addiction from gambling. Are you surprised that the NHL and NBA have allowed current athletes to be used in sports betting advertising? Yes, I am. And I, 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 I don't see the level of uh, pay that those people get for what they do. Why do they need to be involved in that activity at all? And uh, I think uh, the, the professional leagues ought to just say, if you're a professional sports athlete in our league, you can't do that kind of uh, advertising. And they, they've got the ability to do that in their athlete contract that they have. The issue, of course, is they would have to put it into the collective bargaining agreement, which means they have to convince the Players Association that it's a good move. And I'm sure that there'd be some opposition from that. But even uh, the Players Associations recognize it. Yeah, it's not the right thing to do. Uh, final question, Richard. Um, 
when you when you get together at the symposium next week, you're gonna have you're gonna have the sport community is gonna be well represented. There. You're gonna have the sports books are regulated Ontario well represented. Uh, Paul Burns from the Canadian Gaming Association Association will be there along with Shelley White from the Responsible Gambling Council. What what are the kind of conversations that you would like to see maybe happen out, outside of the panels and and speeches that take place? Uh, among this group of people? I would like to see the the groups that don't normally talk to each other talking to each other. So, uh, you know, the sports books don't necessarily talk to the, uh, the academics or uh, um, the, the uh, <clears throat> they talk to the sports uh, regulators. I'd like to see the, have some conversations, some of them with the, the law enforcement people that are coming uh, so that they get more of a 360 degree view of these problems than uh, just their own specialized field or knowledge that they have. I think that's one of the big advantages of this kind of a symposium. It does put people from all aspects of the uh, issues and problems together and take advantage of the time to talk to people that know things that you don't know much about or anything about. The Symposium on Competition, Manipulation and Gambling in Sport takes place next week, May 30th, 31st. I think, Richard, there are still tickets available. There are. And uh, the website where you can order those tickets is ethicalsportsymposium.ca. Um, I would really recommend that if you have an interest in this in this area at all, that you uh, you try to attend at least one day at the symposium. It's a great lineup of speakers. Uh, Richard, you're giving a keynote address on uh, I think on Tuesday on the first day of the symposium. Uh, there is a, a sports betting panel. Uh, Jordan Spencer, who I mentioned earlier, is going to be giving a keynote address, and it, it really is a great lineup that uh, McLaren and, and the CCS put together. Yeah, I hope uh, some of your listeners may uh, decide, even though it's the last minute, you're welcome. We'd love to have you at the uh, symposium. Please register. Uh, Richard McLaren, can't thank you enough for joining the Gaming News uh, Gaming News Canada show podcast hosted by Osler, uh, Hoskin, and Harcourt LLP. Um, I wish you uh, wish you a great symposium next week. Um, we're we're going to obviously get people to come on next Thursday on, on the show and talk about the, the symposium. Uh, but really, uh, really honored to have the opportunity to chat with you and hope we get a chance to do so again in the not-so-distant future. I would be very pleased to do that, and thank you for this uh, session. Great. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gaming News Canada show. Sign up for our newsletter at GamingNewsCanada.ca. Follow Steve McAllister on LinkedIn to join the live audience. Message Steve if you're interested in being a sponsor or featured guest. 